Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Tucked away down a quiet street not far from Howell Mill Road on Atlanta's west side, you'll find the Goat Farm Art Center. It's a compound of artist studios, residences, and performance and event spaces. While there are some goats, it has long been a community where artists can live, exchange ideas, and get projects off the ground. Well, the Goat Farm recently announced a $250 million transformation, and here to tell us about the expansion is Anthony Harper. He is founder and co-owner of the the Goat Farm. Anthony, welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for being here. Let's go back to the origins of the Goat Farm, getting its start late in 2008. How did you land on this piece of property? So actually, it was uh, it was a friend of mine that introduced me to the property. Um, he really just wanted me to go take a look at it for the interesting architecture. But uh, when we went to go tour the site, we fell dangerously in love with the campus there. And uh, we wanted to uh, take a shot at doing something with it. So we went and found a, a partner, and we uh, put it under contract together. Uh, but the recession was starting. Uh, the recession quickly um, uh, uh, put our partner out of business, actually. Uh, we decided to hold on to it. Um, and uh, uh, so we structured a deal, um, an arrangement with the current seller at the time that allowed us to essentially take over the property without purchasing it first and treat it as if it were our own. And so we began to build um, art studios, practitioner spaces, uh, as a way to generate cash flow to pay options on our contract until the recession was over. Um, But ultimately, we uh, never stopped doing that. Uh, We never uh, went with our traditional redevelopment plans, obviously. And now a decade later, we uh, are something completely different. Yeah, so this was an old cotton mill originally, right? Brick buildings of a cotton mill? Yeah, they manufactured uh, cotton gin machines. So not the cotton itself, but the machines. So then what began as a real estate development deal, really, was growing into an arts locale and hosting DIY shows and concerts. How did that come to be? Um, Mostly because we were interacting with a lot of the artists, and uh, it was impacting us in certain ways, complicated ways. Uh, we started to learn the pain points of the arts ecosystem in Atlanta, and we just started to respond to those pain points in different ways with our model, uh, and it just kind of grew from there. What, what are some of those pain points in the arts ecosystem, as you put it? You know, in Atlanta, a big one is funding. Yeah. Um, in Georgia, a big one is funding. Uh, so you mean government grants, arts funding, that kind of support, or patrons? Available donations, grants, yeah, just funding for the arts in general. Uh, so, uh, that's, uh, a big part of what our model has become is how to internally fund, you know, inter- internally provide art- an arts funding stream for the arts ecosystem in Atlanta, um, and to be, uh, essentially a self-reliant, uh, cultural center that doesn't take donations, doesn't take grants. Uh, eventually we, you know, over the years we got to about, um, 200, $250,000 a year, and arts-based funding for the arts ecosystem in Atlanta. Now, uh, under 
the growth plans will allow us to jump that to about a half a million dollars a year in arts funding. That's a huge jump in scale. Mm. What does that feel like for you and your your partners, your whole community? We're really excited about it. Um, you know, in, in a city like Atlanta, if we were a nonprofit, um, you know, the idea of being able to uh, find half a million dollars a year of consistent arts funding for emerging arts activity or mid, you know, mid-layer uh, arts activity would be really, really challenging, um, uh, specifically in Atlanta. You know, maybe in some other cities it'd be more possible, but I think in Atlanta we've been, uh, we, you know, we've had to think through a different model. Uh, and so our tool happens to be real estate development. Uh, so essentially we're utilizing real estate development to fund our arts mission. Right. So that's made the business sustainable. Where are so many other arts organizations thinking, okay, we'll create artist space and event space. They have not survived. So it's interesting to me as somebody who you know moved to Atlanta relatively recently a year ago one of the first places that people told me about you have to go and see the goat farm you know because it is like this little patch of country in the middle of a city you can see the skyline right there but it feels like some kind of altered space and i think it it's rustic it's not slick so with your expansion how do you help retain that sense of place that the goat farm that made the goat farm so special well certainly it it'll be challenging uh, you know a big part of the aesthetic today is falling down buildings there's a couple of falling down buildings and ivy is growing that's ruined porn for <laughs> yeah that's right uh and we of course we find that aesthetic beautiful uh very attractive um but a lot of people don't know that we're also uh, you know, we're more than just a set of beautiful old buildings. Um, you know, we've got our arts mission as well. You know, so we have um, artist in residence programs. You know, we've got an asset ownership program, a program for other arts organizations around the city where we, we try to help them buy their properties to stabilize in their neighborhoods and not have to worry so much about rising rents. So you're patrons of the arts as well. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, we're shooting for a half a million dollars a year at arts funding. Um, so there's lots of ways that, you know, over the past decade, we've we've developed programs to, to support the arts as an arts organization, even though we are also a real estate development entity. So to, to generate that kind of funding and to create those support platforms, obviously it, it costs money. Mm -hmm. uh, so while we love those dilapidated buildings, uh, also, what that means is that it's, it's it's space that's underutilized. Um, it's you know we look at those buildings as arts funding that hasn't uh, reached its full potential yet. So, as much as we'll miss the the old look of the goat farm, uh, the growth is allowing us to to grow our arts mission as well. You know, it's allowing us to jump our well. We have three artist and residence programs today. Now we can jump that to seven uh, residency programs, and of course, I mentioned our arts funding budget will jump from about two hundred and fifty. We're targeting about a half a million uh, a year, um, and this time around, we, you know, our plan is to also program in the development plan. Our plan is to also insert and program in uh, other uh, organizations this time around, so other programmers, so other 
uh, gallery concepts or hub concepts. And so they'll be programming on the site as well, doing performances, exhibitions, concerts, etc., alongside um, Goat Farms uh, programming as well. Anthony Harper is with us. He's founder and co-owner of the Goat Farm Arts Center, which is about to embark on an ambitious expansion project that we are learning about. And how about the look of this? $250 million, huge. So clearly you are growing, and this is a a transformation on a big scale. What is it going to look like, and what else is there? Yeah, so we're uh, uh, actually moving... Uh, the idea is to move the Museum of Contemporary Art of Georgia to the site. Um, so we've gotten through a lot of that work with them. Now they're on to their fundraising campaign, mm-hmm. so they still have to raise the funds. Um, so we've got our fingers crossed on that. Um, we're actually, um, uh, when we reopen, we'll have more artist studio spaces than we have today. today How about have- residencies? Will you still have residences? We will, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, today we have about 68,000 square feet of artist studios, practitioner spaces, workspaces. When we reopen, we'll have around 80,000 square feet so that we'll, we'll grow in, the, in terms of uh, the number of workspaces we can offer. We'll also have uh, new residential options. It's a, it's a blend. We play a, a balancing act there since we're self-funding our arts mission. Uh, so we'll have some uh, straight residential options, some live-work options, some of those will be below market. Some of those are inclusionary zoning, affordable units, and some of those are at market. Uh, and we need some at market product in, you know, inside the plan uh, in order to make our, our model, our arts funding model work. Mm-hmm. We'll also have um, 125 room independent arts-based hotel. Uh, we'll also have about a, a four-story, 60,000 square foot experiment in co-living. Uh, so the, the upper floors would be uh, uh, co-living uh, spaces for creatives, and the bottom floors would be more uh, art studios. Uh, of course, we'll still have our venue uh, where we'll be doing probably 50 or 60 programs a year, performances, exhibitions, a couple of uh, restaurant concepts. We don't want to be a food hall. Um, there won't be any traditional retail, so it's certainly not a shopping center or anything like that. But it sounds like it could be a tourist destination with the hotel and obviously the museum. I think it, I think it's attractive to out-of-towners, um, for sure. Um, you know, if I was from another city and I heard about uh, this uh, kind of self-reliant cultural campus, you know, we, we know it's the, the first and only fully self-funded cultural center in Atlanta, uh, perhaps in the world. We don't know. We've been looking. We're not sure. Well, but, I'm wondering about, do you have best practices to share with other arts organizations in Atlanta or in other cities across Georgia or across the nation? Obviously, you had real estate, and that model, paying for having charging rent, would help fund what your arts organization is. Any other best practices that you want to share? Well, we, we do have an experimental program called Beacons. Uh, we started it about six years ago. And the idea behind this program was to help other arts organizations do what we do um, to become asset owners and, and essentially utilize real estate to generate cash flow so that you don't have to worry so much about generating revenue from your actual arts mission or your actual arts model, especially when your territory or your universe is contemporary expression or experimental performance, which can be really hard to mix that with revenue and find revenue out of that. That's a complicated conversation. But um, 
So we've been experimenting with that program around the city with varying degrees of success and failures. Um, but we do actively uh, 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 try to pass along our model to other arts organizations if, if they're interested. Well, Anthony, best of luck to you. You break ground in what, October? Yeah, we're shooting for October, November-ish. Well, thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you. Anthony Harper, founder and co-owner of the Goat Farm Art Center on Atlanta's west side. And we're going to leave you with the story of an artist by Daniel Johnston. Stay with us. Atlanta Symphony Orchestra principal guest conductor Donald Runnicles is going to talk about his love of conducting and of flying. I'm Virginia Prescott. That is when On Second Thought continues. Try for fame and glory. Others aren't so bold. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Jet Set conductor Donald Runnicles is all over the map, literally. In Berlin, he is music director of the German Opera. In Jackson Hole, Wyoming, he heads the Grand Teton Music Festival. And you'll often find him visiting Georgia as principal guest conductor of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra, which last weekend performed music by Debussy. This weekend, they team up for Beethoven's Pastoral Symphony. It is a busy life, which all began in Edinburgh, Scotland, where Runnicles grew up the son of a church choir master and an amateur pianist. He sat down to talk about it all with GPB's Sarah Zaslaw. What was your first participation in music? Oh gosh, there are people who can remember when they were 18 months old. I'm (laughs) always amazed. I just don't believe that's possible. Actually, my first memories were a combination of piano lessons, which I started when I was seven. And around that time, I was initiated. I was, uh, became a choir boy in uh, the Anglican Church in Scotland, which is called Episcopalian. And, uh, and therefore, music played a very, very big part in all of the services. And that's where I, I started as a, a boy treble and uh, then eventually became a tenor as my voice broke. When did the lightning bolt strike you that conducting might be something to pursue? Uh, I wouldn't say it was a lightning bolt, Sarah. What I would say is that witnessing my father at the helm of the choir and his ability to make out of this very, let's say, the heterogeneity or just the, the, the fact there were so many different voices, making something homogenous, bringing it, uh, my father's favorite word was always unanimity, a unanimous tone. His bar was very high. So it, it was experiencing my father and the, the art of conducting, the art of leadership, the authority needed, but the art of persuasion, the respect shown. Over those years, I began to think, wow, that's something I would love to be able to do and see if I can do that as well as my father. And of course, he was he was steeped in the music of the church, but I was now, by now, uh, at school, far more interested in orchestral music. I didn't really have it have what it took to become a concert pianist. I'm a good pianist, but I, I just, for me, the, the thought of uh, locking myself away for hours and end just by myself was extremely antisocial. I liked making music with colleagues, and that's where my first opportunities at school, I was 14, I was given a chance to lead some of my school friends in a charity concert, Gilbert and Sullivan, some Hyde, and just, and uh, I had this telescopic pen that I used as a baton, and out of that, actually, an ensemble began, which I was then the conductor of. So, yes, there was no lightning moment, but I, I do remember when 
this group of friends became this so-called Caritas Ensemble. And we, after perhaps five or six years, uh, it grew to about 75 players from a variety of schools. I was at a boys' school. There was no such thing as co-ed in those days. And then we brought in a girls' school, and therefore, and then I started doing Dvořák and Beethoven and some Wagner. And uh, yeah, that that's when it was very clear to me, and I feel in that respect I'm very lucky. I knew very early on what I really wanted to do. The question then becomes, how do you do it? How do you get to the professional level? Should I ask you how you got to the professional level? <laughs> Funny you should ask that. <laughs> There's a great deal of fantastic amateur music uh, in Great Britain, great youth orchestras, but it really is quite quite challenging to make it to move from the amateur to the professional. I had a, a very, I would say, academic uh, training at university in Edinburgh. While I was doing the academia, I'd taken up the French horn, and I had come to love opera through a visit to Scottish opera. I saw my first installment of the ring cycle, that was a lightning bolt. That really hit me between the eyes and changed me forever. Wagner. And I realized opera was uh, something I wanted to, to know more about, specifically the music of Richard Wagner, which led then to the music of Anton Bruckner, the music of Gustav Mahler, etc., etc. So I went from Edinburgh to Cambridge and uh, did a postgraduate degree there. And from there, I went to London to the Opera Centre and was trained as a so-called repetiteur, which is a, a coach in an opera company. And when I was 23, I went to Germany and uh, joined one of the big opera companies there and worked my way through from piano playing to accompanying singers to coaching singers to conducting rehearsals and then eventually standing in front of the real thing, <laughs> the orchestra. That's a time-honored career path, I think, in Europe, especially, where there are so many full-time opera companies to, mm -hmm. be the, to be the pianist first. Can you make it as a conductor if you're not a pianist? You can. I mean, I would say that piano is perhaps in terms of uh, being able to sit down and, and play a score, or uh, one of the skills I learned at university was score reading. In other words, seeing five or six voices, string quartet, for instance, and reading all four parts simultaneously and playing it at the piano in different clefts and this or the other. So the piano is, you can, you can create your own orchestra, so to speak. But there are many, many fine conductors who are clarinetists, they're oboists. Um, I was speaking with Simon Rattle this morning, and uh, he's a timpanist, he's a percussionist. And I mean, he's a very good pianist too, but it's not absolutely essential, uh, but I think it's very important to have some training in playing an instrument in which you've actually sat in an orchestra and you get a feel for what it's like to play with other colleagues. How you, how does an orchestra tune? How does it play together? And uh, But certainly, as, as a pianist, I, I enjoy, for instance, one of my other hats is, of course, in Berlin at the opera. And I enjoy, if I've worked with a, a singer with the orchestra and there are certain things we want to discuss, just taking that person into a studio just sitting down and playing, and just, just the two of us, uh, which is easier than if I'm not a pianist and therefore I need somebody to play for me, and all of a sudden, two's company, three's a crowd. and uh, So yeah, it's not a prerequisite, but it's, it's a big help. As a sidebar, I'd like to hear more about what's involved in score reading, because this seems to me just an impossible human activity. If you're looking at not just a string quartet, but a whole orchestra, maybe there are 20 lines on that page, mm -hmm. and they're, not, they're in different clefs. Some mm -hmm. of them are in different keys, like the clarinet 
A isn't the same as a violin A. How do you learn to process that all and turn it into a coherent chord in your head? Study. Are there, are there I, exercises I, for this kind of thing that build step by step? Um, I I would say that those exercises that I, I thought at the time, oh my goodness, this is so really academic and the score reading and sitting down and having a Haydn string quartet put in front of you and then you're supposed to not only sight read it in terms of reading it, but also, as you say, a viola plays in a different clef. It, it really, it's practice. It really is practice. I wish I could say, just add water or just do this uh, or be a genius, perhaps. <laughs> Those are a lot of lines that, that you are, you can't, you can't read them simultaneously. I mean, you can with a string quartet. There are four voices. You can perhaps do it for six voices. Your eye is constantly scanning up and down, up and down. You're always a little ahead of what you're playing. But when it comes to, well, I mean, for instance, doing La Mer uh, with a very large symphony orchestra, you've just worked very hard on the score and you know what it sounds like. You can read it, you hear it, and you, your eye moves to what is at that given moment probably the most important line. It can be the first violin, that may move to a clarinet, that may move, move to a French horn. But it's it's just always it's scanning, scanning. You're not reading. I mean, you should You're not know, sight reading. No, point. I mean you should know the piece well enough that your eye is immediately going to the place because you've you've just you've practiced it. But do you mark up your score with highlighters or colors? I used to mark my scores early on, but I don't know. I I, I find that. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a very interesting questions here. I. I found that when I started marking up my scores too much, for instance, I was just conducting the opera Parsifal in, in Berlin a couple of weeks ago. And I have a score which I bought in 1983, and I went with James Levine to, to Bayreuth, to the Mecca, the Wagner Mecca, and I assisted him there, and I, I just assiduously marked every last little thing. Jimmy conducts this in two, in four, he takes time there, and this and the other. And then I, uh, he changed from year to year, and then uh, I, I put in my own markings, and then another conductor uh, would be doing it, and I would be assisting them. And after a while, there were so many markings, I found that when I conducted it myself, I was conducting the markings. That is to say, I was uh, not really looking at the music. And therefore, it's an exercise I go through fairly regularly when I do a piece, a Gustav Mahler symphony, for instance. After two or three years, I'll order a new score, and there'll be nothing in it. Once again, in order just to see the music and just, uh, and look, I, I'm only speaking for myself, but I find that if you mark things up too much, you, 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 in some ways you inhibit yourself. You're only doing what, oh yes, this is where I speed up, and this is where I go into four, and this is where I go into two. This is where I wiggle my pinky. Yes, you know, this is where I have to wipe my glasses because I can't see a darn thing. <laughs> So th yes, that's where I find that uh, I, I find I, I mark things less and less because things will occur to you quite spontaneously. Often, I'm sure tonight when I'm conducting the Debussy, there'll be a, the, a moment where I'll have some new insight into some. It's not that oh, isn't that brilliant? But something, some connection, some thematic, motivic connection in this great masterpiece will suddenly become apparent and. Uh, you can only see that in that you're looking at it. Hmm. You must have known Debussy's La Mer for decades now, but a couple of weeks ago you posted a picture of Debussy saying something about the genius of La Mer, and I wondered what it was that had jumped out at you just that day to inspire that. I was uh, working on La Mer for here, because I, once again, had a, <laughs> a new score. 
obviously I'm, I'm some weeks out uh, in, in terms of just reminding myself of, uh, of a work and studying it again. And it was while I was working on it, and I was doing some research into it, and, and all of a sudden I saw this picture in color, and I thought it was just, oh my goodness, to have known that man. Uh, just this, this revolutionary figure in such subtle ways, and uh, to bring the ocean, to bring the swell, to bring the wind, the waves, the fragrance, the salt, all into a concert hall. Amazing, and I, I saw that picture and I took the liberty just to basically an homage. Mm -hmm. Debussy was almost a sailor. He thought about being a sailor. He loved being on the sea, even in a storm. Mm -hmm. Ended up composing. If you couldn't have been a musician, God forbid, what would you have been? I would have been a pilot. Absolutely. Not too I, different from a sailor, actually. Uh, no, in that you're... Riding somewhat, the swells? Yes, I was going to say you're at the mercy <laughs> of the... A pilot? Do you fly? I do. I, I don't fly-fly, but I'd like to. Uh, I have a... I was just thinking when you asked the question about score reading. It's score reading in terms of having lots and lots of lines in your vision. Mm -hmm. It's not unlike when you're flying flying an aircraft and you have lots of dials and you know your your speed, your altitude, your speed of ascent, speed of death. And I, I have a simulator, a flight simulator, both in Berlin and in Jackson Hole. And I fly as much as I, I can. I love it. And I, I have a very, he was initially a colleague. He was the principal bass player of the Deutsche Oper Orchestra. He was also a pilot. And he flew, flew very well-known conductors between Berlin and Salzburg and Bayreuth. Of course, he flew professionally. Anyway, I got to become very good friends with him. And uh, he is my instructor. And he comes by once a week and... I don't think I'm bright enough. <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know, when you're talking about aerodynamics and all the things you need to know about, of course, I'm far too old for that now, but uh, whether I could have done it, I'm not sure. But I, flying for me is still utterly remarkable, utterly remarkable, and not just death-defying. It, it really, it still never wears off uh, an aircraft taking off. You know, whenever I'm flying, which is a great deal. Often. <laughs> often. I still, of course, I go through all of this in my head now because I know the checklist and I know what's going on in the, in the cockpit. And, uh, oh, I love it. But just to be clear, you've never flown an airplane. I've co-piloted a plane because okay. uh, in, in the Tetons, a lot of people have uh, their jets or they have uh, access to smaller aircraft. And so I've gone up a number of times. Uh, and actually, one of the things that really was for me that lightning bolt that moment was when I was with up with my, my they were then young children and I was up with uh, a very very experienced pilot who had this very beautiful smallish plane and he flew me I had to pick up somebody in Sun Valley so we flew from Jackson Hole to Sun Valley and, and back and I sat in the co-pilot seat and I got a chance to f fly the plane a bit and uh, we landed back in, in the Tetons, and he went up a week later by himself and had a stroke, a severe stroke. He managed, I mean, he was an astonishing pilot. He managed to land the plane, the aircraft. While he was flying. While he was flying. Uh, and he was in Vietnam, and he really was this remarkable man. But there was an ambulance waiting for him um, at Jackson Hole Airport, and uh, he's in a wheelchair. And one of the first calls his wife made was to me to say, if that had happened last week and, and you'd been there with your children, and that was when I realized I have to be able to land a plane. I have to be, it's not so much taking off, but I have to be able to land a plane. And that was the moment where I thought, 
okay, I'm going to study this. So I, I hope it never happens, but it's good on some level to know that I, I think I could land that plane now. Conductor and would-be pilot. Well, in our last minute here, I'd like to ask you about next weekend's concert you're leading with the Atlanta Symphony, mostly Beethoven, including Beethoven's Pastoral Symphony. Beethoven loved nature. You love nature. What do you get out of Beethoven's sixth? There's two levels at which this music has an impact on me. The one is just the feeling of, these are like folk tunes, a village wedding, or people thankful for the storm has moved through. You have the simplicity of so many of these themes. That's the one level. Uh, But the other level is there's a deeply, for want of a better word, pantheistic element to this music, this love of humanity. While it's a celebration of nature, it's a celebration of being human. It's a celebration of how precious life is. And when when you have this moment where the storm breaks in on, quite literally, on this merry village wedding, you can obviously understand it or appreciate it as a real storm. And that's certainly, that's a noisy movement and it's brilliant. You can understand it on many different levels, a literal level, but a very spiritual level. At the end of that work, you feel a better person. You feel you've been on another journey. Donald Renickel speaking with GPB's Sarah Zaslaw. He's principal guest conductor of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. He and they perform Beethoven's Pastoral Symphony through Sunday. Sarah hosts Nightcap and weekly Atlanta Symphony broadcasts over most GBB stations. We are back with On Second Thought from GBB and Virginia Prescott. All this week, we've been talking with reporters from GBB's Full Plate series about hunger. One in six Georgians is food insecure, meaning they don't always know where their next meal will come from. And as we've learned, food insecurity is often linked to access, and not just in rural, remote areas. More than one-third of metro Atlanta is considered to be a food desert. Ross Terrell spoke with one resident working to overcome a lack of reliable transportation. Bobby Akins lives on Auburn Avenue in downtown Atlanta. He stays in a high-rise building on a fixed income but there's no grocery stores around there at all. They got a little convenience store, but you know they open 24 hours. But you got to pay double for everything. The closest large grocery store is Publix, which is about two miles away. That means Aikens lives in a food desert, an urban area where the closest supermarket or grocery store with fresh produce is more than a mile away, and Aikens doesn't have a car. To be in a food desert and to have uh, limited options in terms of transportation, uh, that compounds the problem. That's Rodney Lynn. He teaches in the School of Public Health at Georgia State University. If you're in a food desert, but you have access to an automobile, um, that helps to mitigate the barrier uh, in some ways. Aikens relies on Metro Atlanta's Rapid Transit Authority, or MARTA, to get to Malachi's Storehouse, a food pantry north of Atlanta. I get the number three outside, I go to Five Point, get the northbound to Shamley, then the 132 to Hemp, then then get off in front of the church. It's a trip that takes more than an hour if everything goes as planned. 
Denise Blakely is with Wholesome Wave Georgia, a food justice organization. She says the long commute is just the tip of the iceberg. It's one thing to be able to get to market with yourself and maybe a couple of kids. It's another thing to have to try to get home while you're slipping bags and baskets. So I wanted to know, what are some solutions for people living in food deserts without reliable transportation? Well, for starters, Lyft, a rideshare company, started offering subsidized rides to grocery stores for 300 families in the metro area who are food insecure. Here's Blakely again. People who are participating in this pilot can have a very cost-effective, door-to-door service without that barrier of the time it takes to get back home uh, on MARTA with all of your shopping items. But the program is limited geographically and is only eight months long. And then there's another problem. Most people have to use food stamps once they're there. Remember Bobby Akins, who lives on a fixed income? He used to receive hundreds in food stamp benefits until he started pulling in too much money. I got a raise on my check. They give me $15 a month. What can you do with $15? isn't enough for one day. The city's transit authority is trying to help with that with Marta Market. They offer fresh food at stations on Atlanta's west side, and SNAP benefits are doubled there. Blakely with Wholesome Wave says that isn't going to replace large retailers, but it is a step in the right direction. They don't have to leave the station, or if they want it just to be a destination to shop, that's available to them. It gives people the dignity of choice. And that's what Aikens appreciates about the storehouse. He shops around, picking what he wants, sifting through the good and bad produce before stuffing a suitcase full of groceries to take back to his apartment. Though he says it isn't all for him. Yeah, I try to get extra food, food and stuff to take back to the people that can't get out. There's all the other people that really can't get out. Aiken says he doesn't mind going to the food pantry, but what he really wants is an affordable grocery store in his neighborhood. For GPB News, I'm Ross Terrell in Atlanta. And Ross is with me in the studio. Hello there. Hey, how's it going? Just fine. More than a third of Atlanta is in a food desert. How does that happen in such a big city? Yeah, it's, it's kind of hard to believe uh, when you talk about Atlanta and what they bring to the table being this kind of worldwide city, uh, attracting these major events. Um but it's the idea of having easy access to a grocery store. Um, and even for somebody like Aikens living downtown, the closest one is two miles away. Um, and a lot of these food deserts are kind of in, in West Atlanta, Southwest Atlanta. And one thing I heard was about attracting grocery stores there is they want to know that residents are making a certain amount of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, they want to know that people are hitting a threshold when you talk about the Trader Joe's, the Whole Foods, those that we kind of grow accustomed to. Um, and if they're not seeing that, they're a little reluctant to build. And that just kind of compounds the problem of a number of residents uh, not having a place to go get fresh fruit, fresh groceries. Well, as we just heard about Malachi's, the food pantry, that's Dunwoody it takes an hour by mass transit for mm-hmm. for him to get there you went and visited what did you see there what was it like it was it was fascinating I think uh, one thing I learned through this is food insecurity doesn't really have a look um, I mean there were a number of people there they were all races um, ages uh, genders, all, all types of things. Um, but one thing that was encouraging was where this food was coming from. It was coming from Costco. It was coming from Publix, Whole Foods. Um, and it really felt like a grocery store. So it's all donated food? All don- or, or food that would have been thrown out. So they go and get that other food, um, certain items they buy with their own money. Um, but it's a lot of donated goods that otherwise would be tossed in a landfill are now given to people who need to eat. Well, Ross, you told the story through Bobby Akins. How did you choose him and why? 
So I, I talked to a few people while I was there, and I think the thing that jumped out to me about Bobby um, was not only does he live in Atlanta, you know, in this high-rise tower, um, but what I saw from him and what I saw from everyone was this idea of, of selflessness. And what really jumped out to me was he carries a suitcase and a book bag with him. So he gets his groceries, uh, and you heard in that last sentence, there are people in his building who can't get out. Yeah. So I saw him, you know, just stuffing everything he could, juice, fruit, uh, even some dessert. He's like, you know, we all have a sweet tooth, so I'll take this cake back, and uh, we'll, we'll all have a slice and kind of packing it with a tissue so it didn't break on the way home. But just this idea of, you know, we all need to eat. And um, he lugs that suitcase with him on the MARTA bus. He takes it back. He gives it out to the residents in his apartment. Um, and then he's back there the next week kind of doing the same thing. And I thought that was really interesting to see kind of this community f use their resource that they had to make sure that they had fresh food. And to share. And to share. Yeah. So when you spoke to Blakely, he mentioned giving people the dignity of choice. What did he mean by that? Um, that was, was fascinating. I think we get so used to seeing, you know, meal delivery where we put the package together, we give it out to people. Um, but here is really set up... As you were walk like you were walking through the house of grocery store, just like you know we do, we go to Kroger, we go up and down the aisles, choose what we want. Um, the people here have the same option. Uh, they get a hot meal and they come in, and then they get a ticket and they get in line and they grocery shop. Um, there was you know bananas, apples, oranges. They can sift through and choose. Ah, this one doesn't look that great. I don't want it. Um, what type of milk they want, how much they want it. There was um, a counter just I mean filled with bread options, so they could get their fancy bread, they could get some wheat bread, whatever they want. And it was kind of set up in a U-shape around table. So you go around, if you want a dessert, get some dessert. Um, it's just this option that humanizes an issue. Right, rather than going to the cafeteria line in school and you got to exactly, eat the pizza. Exactly, you get two choices, that's it. But here it's like, here, come grocery shop here. So that is with Wholesome Wave Georgia, I should have pointed out, that gives people that kind of choice. Mm -hmm. But there's also, you know, the expenses, right? You know, there are there plans for any kind of affordable grocery store in the area? You mentioned that they have to have a certain kind of population density making a certain kind of money. And we've heard from other stories this week that it's zoning, that there are grant programs that are available for this. But how about how online shopping at delivery? That's something that a lot of people use to get over access. Right. Uh, I found that interesting. You, you think in this age of technology, uh, you know, why not shop online? If public is two miles away, they could deliver. And I talked to a guy, Nathaniel Harris, who lives out in Decatur. And to his point, he said, a lot of us don't have credit or debit cards. You know, that's another access issue when you talk about uh, financial stability. You have to shop online. You have to have access to a certain pot of wealth that some people don't have. Um, the mayor has made it one of her top priorities uh, to fight food deserts in Atlanta. We saw last, I think it was in the winter around Christmas, she posted the awful picture of mac and cheese. Mm -hmm. But she turned that into a campaign called More Than Mac to raise money to fight food deserts, to help start building grocery stores. And that's been kind of a top um, flight of her campaign so far. When you look at the fact that 819,000 Atlanta residents are considered food insecure. Um and it's a staggering number, especially it is a staggering number. here when we have a new Whole Foods right, you know, right down the street right. that we go a mile in another direction, and there are people who don't have a grocery store. Well, it also made me curious. You mentioned that Bob or Bobby mentioned that he's been kicked off of the SNAP rolls or the food stamp mm -hmm. rolls. Why did that happen? So he's on a fixed income. Uh, his income that he was getting that went up. It hit a threshold where he then lost 
food stamp benefits. And so now he's down to $15 a month. Um, and talking to Blakely, um, that's known as the cliff effect. So this idea of, let's say you're making $9 an hour working. You start making ten twenty five an hour, which is then too high. So you lose benefits in another area. Um, and it kind of keeps you in this this weird space because the benefits you get from your raise don't outweigh how much you just lost when it comes to SNAP benefits. Um, and that for, for Bobby, you know, he's single, so he worries about himself and his neighbors. But if you have a family, uh, Blakely pointed out, that then leads you to choices. Do I pay my bills or do we get groceries? Yeah. Do I get gas? And it really puts you in a tough area of trying to gain, um, trying to elevate yourself financially to only lose assistance that you were truly dependent on. Yeah, I'm a little stuck on that number you mentioned, 819,000 people food insecure in Atlanta. So any given day. All of us are passing people who are hungry. Yes. Um, and and I, the thing that jumped out to me, I think about Aikens, I talked to another guy, uh, Stanley Sutherland, was they all live in this area. You know, we aren't talking, um, like you mentioned, rural Georgia. We're not talking uh, in the mountains where you can't build. Uh, we're talking right around us. And, and Sutherland, he was another case where he was down to $10 in food stamps. And, you know, I asked him, I was like, why don't you just go to Publix? He lives in Buckhead. He's like... Because I can come here and get chicken that could last me a week. If I go to Publix, that costs $6. I can't do anything after that. Um, So you really see that, I mean, people depend and rely on these storehouses, on this donated food, on these pantries. Uh, GBB is wrapping up its full plate series. How do you plan to follow up on stories like Bobby's and this greater issue of food insecurity in Atlanta? Uh, Some plans I... I think the idea is to find other families and kind of tell every story is different. Um, and, and when you find those other families and see kind of what they're working with, um, I think that really puts a face on this issue. Uh, you also have the Access Aglana plan, which uh, is the using farmers markets to kind of help people have this access is doubling their SNAP benefits, which is one thing the Marta markets do. So if I go there with $10 and in, in SNAP benefits, it's now 20. Um, and those are located on the West side. So in those areas where, you know, people rely on public transportation, where there isn't that grocery store, they're able to then kind of do it all in one. I take the train anyway, and my benefits are doubled here. Ross Terrell, thank you so much. Thank you. Ross Terrell is one of those who reported on the GPB Full Plate series. You can see the entire series at our website, gpbnews.org. Have a great weekend, y'all. This is On Second Thought from GPB. Rose Hotel is not a hotel at all. It's a band. But that doesn't mean that these tunes won't make you dream with their lo-fi bedroom indie pop sound. Rose Hotel is the music project of Atlanta-based singer, songwriter, and frontwoman of the band, Jordan Reynolds. The song you're hearing now is called Would You Believe Me, off the band's debut LP called I Will Only Come When It's a Yes, and it's out today. Rose Hotel is having a release show tonight at 529 in East Atlanta. But first, Reynolds stopped by the GPB studios to add two tracks to our Georgia playlist of songs written or performed by a Georgian. Hi, I'm Jordan Reynolds, and I'm the songwriter for the band Rose Hotel. So the first song I chose is Bodioti Dopalicious by Outkast. When I first met my spotted, oated, Dopalicious angel, I can remember that damn thing like yesterday. 
The way she moved reminded me of a brown stallion house with skates on, you know. The reason I chose it for the Georgia playlist is because when I was visiting Atlanta a lot before I moved here and I was playing in bands and we were touring through Atlanta, every time we would start to see the skyline of Atlanta, we'd be like, oh my gosh, we have to put on Outcast." It just kind of like was an association with the city and it was always kind of just like sentimental to me and I loved Outcast as a kid. Like the trumpet part in it is always, it's just an iconic part and I just associate it with the city and it's just kind of sentimental. And it's a great song. My second pick is a song called Keep the Change by an Atlanta artist named Mateel. It's one of her new singles, and I just love Mateel's band. Like, they're such talented musicians. We got to play a show with them at Terminal West last year, and I was so impressed by just the musicianship of the whole band. And this new round of singles she's put out, each song is so, like, crisp and awesome and retro-sounding. And this new one, Keep the Change, I love the sentiment of the song. I kind of feel like she's almost questioning being in music and I think a lot of musicians feel that way yeah I just I think it's an awesome song like it sounds beautiful I love the little like toy piano part at the beginning of the song and her voice is so cool and I think it's kind of representative of a different style of music coming out of Georgia like I wanted to do something that was hip-hop and rap but because that's so ingrained in the city, but there's also this awesome like rock scene here too. That is Atlanta-based singer-songwriter Jordan Reynolds, also known as Rose Hotel. And we'll leave you with another one of her songs. This is called Running Behind off Rose Hotel's debut album, which is out today. There's an album release concert happening tonight at 529 in East Atlanta Village. For more on that show or for more Georgia playlists, visit gpbnews.org. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, Leighton Rowell, and LaRaven Taylor. Jesse Nyswanger is our engineer. Don Smith, our dean of grammar. Amy Kylie is senior producer. Our interns are Allison Krausman and Jake Troyer. Sarah Shariari is managing editor for GPB News. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for spending some time with us today on On Second Thought.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.